Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm Mary McDougall and I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Major, co-manager of Bellevue Healthcare Trust, formerly BB Healthcare Trust, which he has managed since it launched in 2016. The fund's net assets have grown by an impressive 89% over the past five years, according to winter flood data, to over £1.1 billion. Paul has been covering the healthcare sector since the mid-90s, including previous roles as a sell-side analyst at Redburn and before that UBS. Paul, thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Well, I'm very well. And we've timed this perfectly because I've written the IC's cover story this week, which will be published on Friday and is an assessment of converging technologies and their applications in healthcare. Now, you and, and looking at where there's real opportunity and where there's a lot of hype. And your fund looks to invest in opportunities where there is a transformation ready to take place. Please, can you give us some detail on what your investment approach is and where you think the best opportunities are? Sure. So so the way we think about healthcare, which I think is quite unusual in, in, in many ways, is not to consider different subsectors of healthcare or, or to focus on any specific area. It's to try and take a more holistic approach and think about healthcare as a, as a cost and, and structural problem that society needs to solve. You know, as much as any, any of your listeners might love the NHS, I think if we all objectively look at it, we, we, we recognise that the service is falling apart. Uh, it's crumbling under uh, significant pressure from, from, from demand, but at the same time, the funding side of it is extremely difficult to reconcile. So we've had comments from, you know, the health minister that is on an unsustainable trajectory, and there was an article even today talking about how GPs are all failing to, to deliver the services that they want to provide to patients. So, so the way we try and approach it is really to understand where, where the problems lie and, and how they might be addressed. So what we need is, is, is better quality of care and, and improved productivity for caregivers so that they can basically achieve high levels of efficiency and, and deliver a, a satisfactory standard of service without at the same time effectively bankrupting society. So we look at everything through that prism and, and you know, you touched on the subject of technology and we see a transformation of healthcare as being an inevitable reality over the next five to 10 years because of the challenges that I've just outlined. And many of the changes that are now going to be possible are, are, are really happening because of an intersection between the delivery of healthcare and technology itself, both in terms of understanding where the problems lie understanding and recognising who most needs help when, and then also being able to deliver it, particularly in, in different settings. So we're living in a world where technology enables a lot more remote diagnosis, remote management of patients and all those sorts of things, which can have a significant impact on how services are delivered and, and, and how you manage demand. So could you give some examples of companies that you think are really at the cutting edge here? Yeah, sure. So so I think for us, that w- one of the most fertile areas um, for the healthcare trust over its five and a bit years thus far has has been really around diagnostics. So if you if you think about all all diseases, you know ultimately everything that uh, is manifesting in a person is the result of biochemical changes that are happening in their body that are regulated by their genes. So there is a, there is an underlying mechanism behind every symptom and every disease. And as as we understand the biology of different um, symptom presentations and also underlying diseases, we can develop increasingly accurate molecular level diagnostics to to identify rapidly who's suffering from what and why. And that's really transforming how you deliver healthcare. So if, if you take um, 
a really simplistic example. You know, when I was at university in the early 90s, people used to talk about breast cancer and they used to talk about it as being composed of maybe three or four different diseases, most of which were to do with hormone status and things. Now breast cancer is segmented into dozens and dozens of specific subsets and the drugs that you would get to treat your disease would be very specifically related to the presentation of that. So we're effectively seeing a fragmentation of cancer into a series of of molecularly specific diagnoses. And, and that's just kind of one example of, of, of how we're, we're enabling better diagnosis and therefore better treatment outcomes and uh, management of patients over the longer term. So the, the revolution of healthcare is, is going to happen in lots and lots of different ways, but, but it really starts with more accurate diagnosis and also identification of risk. So, you know, we all have a level of, of risk to different diseases. We may not necessarily know what it is, but there are certain markers that you can see that will tell you whether or not somebody's at high risk of cardiovascular disease or something else. And if we can identify people earlier, we can measure and manage them to make sure that they don't tip into that symptomatic bucket of having, you know, potentially a serious disease and, uh, and, and, and obviously cost society a lot of money and have an impaired quality of life. Yeah. And people talk about healthcare as being a defensive sector, even in times of war, people need um, healthcare, but it's also a highly rated sector. And some pockets have seen big share price falls recently. How do these two reconcile each other in the context of your fund? You know, that's a fascinating question. There, there, there's a, an, an off-used sort of aphorism. I think it's a, attributed to Keynes about, you know, markets can be irrational longer than you can remain solvent. And mm-hmm. sometimes strange things just happen. So so we, we've been in a period really for the last six or nine months where you've seen a significant breakdown in the, the, the valuations of certain areas of healthcare. This is true in, in other parts of the market too, but, but it's, it's quite notable in healthcare. And if you try and work out, you know, what's the common factor, if you like, between these companies, it's generally size. So what we've seen is a dislocation of small and mid-sized companies from, from large-sized companies. Now, that might reflect a change in people's risk appetite precisely because of geopolitical issues and other things. Um, it might represent, you know, perceived concerns about funding and, and, and the availability of cash because we've seen a huge number of IPOs over the last two years. And, you know, there's, there, there's quite a lot of companies out there that people know will be looking for additional funding as they progress or not progress with their businesses. But... To be honest with you, if, if you look at all of this objectively, none of these things re- re- really make very much sense. And it just sort of looks like we're in a, a situation where a trend has started and because of the complexities of the marketplace right now, people are reluctant to catch the falling knife, you know, pick up the bottom of the valuation trough. And so we, we're seeing significant derating. And, and, and if you look at it, you know, biotechnology as a, as a classical example, if you look at the where, where the biotechnology indices are right now, they're basically back where they were pre-COVID. So it's almost as if the market is trying to tell you there's been no measurable scientific progress over a two or three year period that's worth attributing any value to. And that clearly that is a nonsensical point of view. So I can't really tell you why certain areas of healthcare are not behaving in that classically de- de- defensive way at the moment. I think some of these concerns about funding and so on that people have tried to sort of back solve the, the, the share price fall by suggesting you know, possible reasons why it's happened. None of none of that, to my mind, makes a great deal of sense. And I think in a couple of years' time, people will look back on this moment and they will look at this divergence between small and mid-cap and large-cap healthcare and they'll say, wow, that was a tremendous opportunity. 
because if you if you take a step back again from the market and you ask yourself some really fundamental questions you know has the um political situation with regard to the regulation of healthcare changed has the funding situation for healthcare changed has the demand outlook for healthcare changed clearly the answer to all of those questions is no so there's no reason to be less optimistic about the future today than previously there's no reason to imagine that companies won't be able to secure comparable pricing for products than than we were imagining six or nine months ago. There's no reason to think that they're less likely to get things approved. Therefore, actually, when you think about them as financial entities, there's no reason why your future profit forecast should be different today to where they were before. Begging the question why, as you, as you, as you rightly point out, some things are, are suddenly worth 30 or 40% less than they were six months ago. Isn't the political uncertainty that, that that's ongoing though with the election cycle well you know political uncertainty is is always a, a reality you know again another another great aphorism is you should never own health care uh, during a u.s presidential election if you actually look at the data from the last eight or nine presidential election cycles that's not true either when people start debating you know when you get down to the two candidates and the, the, the televised debate start actually healthcare tends to outperform because what happens in politics always is as we know very well with our own prime minister these days people overpromise at the beginning and then when they actually get to the point where they have to deliver on what they claim they start rowing back and saying well you know we can't do what we wanted and all this sort of thing and healthcare is always an example of that it's a hot button issue in the US it, it plays well to a divided electorate everybody cares about healthcare so it's an obvious thing to talk about but actually, it's a very hard thing to reform. So everybody talks a good game during the primaries, and then when it gets to the, the reality, they, they, their policies start to get uh, uh, moderated. If we think about the situation we have at the moment, you know, we we have a democratic president, we have uh, a democratic House of Reps, we have a Republican Senate, and we have midterms coming up. Biden has really struggled to pass his legislative agenda up to now. The, the midterms are always a repudiation of whoever's in the White House and, you, you, you know, you you lose um, uh, power rather than gain it. So it looks very unlikely that, that he will have a greater ability to pass legislation in the final two years of his tenure than, than before. So, so I would say we're, we're set on a pattern for the next two to three years of really nothing at all happening in healthcare. So, so I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that political uncertainty is high at the moment or, or that it's changed particularly... Um, uh, over again over the last six months or so, you, you know, there was some discussion around trying to do something on drug pricing and so on and so forth. But again, as is always the way with these things, people people talk a good game, but when it actually comes to crafting legislation and writing something that will pass, it's very very challenging. And forty um, percent of your portfolio is invested in therapeutics, according mm. to your fact sheet. Um, how do you approach investing in these companies? What are you looking for because I mean drug when, when I was researching my piece I learnt that um, to bring a new mar- drug to market is the average cost is 1.3 billion takes 7 to 12 years and has a 5 to 10% chance of success yeah I know right? <laughs> if that was an inv- if that was an elevator pitch for an investment you wouldn't invest in it and that is the reality of, of, of the pharmaceutical industry and has been for some time um, so, so how do you approach these things well clearly you need some degree of specialist knowledge um, but what what you have to do is you have to try and um, have enough information that you can handicap the probabilities as best you can. But also when you make an investment, you have to probability adjust 
all of these things. Now, for us, we run a concentrated portfolio. It's a high conviction portfolio. And, and as you rightly point out, it's not just focused on drugs. So we don't do, generally speaking, early stage R&D type therapeutic companies. And we don't generally do what we call monoline companies, where it's a single product or a single approach. We tend to like platform companies where they're developing a particular technology that can then be applied multiple times over to different diseases or companies where they have uh, a number of things that are um, in, uh, within their pipeline um, th th that we can understand and model. Generally, we like phase two or later. So, so by the time you've got to phase two, you have a reasonable idea of the effect size of the drug, um, the side effect profile of the drug, how it compares to the standard of care if there is one for the particular disease and you can do some pharmacoeconomic modeling as to you know what's the value to society of this thing pharma industry is not very good at pricing to value but at least it gives you an idea of of um what, what a reasonable price point might be for the product and then there's lots and lots of data sets that you can look at that, that will give you probability success by stage by area and all those sorts of things so you try and take all of that into account model out the, the 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 likely sales of the drug, assuming a reasonable degree of market penetration, probability adjust it, and then look at the share price and say, what is the market telling me today? You know, is this an asset that is valued with the presumption that it's going to be unduly successful, or is it valued as if it's going to fail? Sometimes you get interesting situations. So we have been interested recently in um, an, a company that's that's um, focusing on on some ophthalmic indications. There are two companies vying to launch the first product for an eye disease where, where there's no standard of care. So the market's well understood. And, you know, one of those companies, um, the clinical trials look very well constructed. The other one, the clinical trials look too small and the effect size in the clinical trials so far looks to have come from the placebo arm being weird rather than the drug appearing to work. So in that situation, we can look at these two companies and say, well, I'm very happy to assume this one I can model and I can assume, you know, presume some degree of success. The other one, it's unmodelable because the clinical trials didn't behave in, it in, in kind of a rational way. So there's lots and lots of ways you can approach it to try and reduce the risk that you make a systematic error. Now, I'm not going to try and pretend that we don't make mistakes. We don't have companies that, you know, devalue in the portfolio because their, their drugs fail in clinical trials. No, Nobody can get this perfectly right, but it's about balance of probabilities and really having companies where you're confident you're not overpaying for a realistic probability of success. And then when you take that into other areas, you know, we, we approach um, things like diagnostics and, and, and medical devices in a slightly different way. So we're probably more, more likely to be investing in companies where the product's available, but maybe that that economic data that shows its, its, its benefit to society hasn't been published yet and we can do lots of work there and we can take a view as to, you know, is the, is the market appropriately recognising the, the, the value construct and therefore what the thing can ultimately uh, sell in terms of, 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 of scale of market penetration. And they're the sorts of things that we, we, we tend to go for. What we don't generally do is binaries, you know, is it, is it mm -hmm. flip of a coin, is this going to work or not work? or things where it's very, very early stage and we can't get access to any data, speak to any doctors about how they'd use something or what they think they need, all those sorts of things. How often would you expect to have to stump up more cash? For what you mean? for, for Well, so in our portfolio, so we have about 30 companies in the portfolio at the moment. We have um, about five that 
within our sort of so we we, we tend to assume that we're going to hold things for five to seven years that's our, our, our starting point and, and we model out you know a kind of journey over that longer period of time within that we have five companies currently that we think will need additional capital from the market in the next five years and two that we think will of that five that would need additional money in the, in the next two years so as I say, we don't generally do kind of early stage things. The, the important thing for us in a situation like that, we're, we're comfortable to have companies that are pre-commercial, so they haven't yet got any any revenue from a product, um, as long as it's, it's coming or expected to come in the near term. And we're happy to invest in companies that we know are going to come back to the market, as long as we can see what we call gating points between when they're likely to need the money and now, that demonstrate will allow them to demonstrate more effectively what the value proposition of the product is. So if you think about, come back to your, your, your point about drug development, as things move through the different stages of development, obviously the probability they ultimately reach the market gets higher. So, mm-hmm. so the net present value goes up. Um, and, and if you have events like that, that enable you to be more confident, then, then obviously it means you're going to be raising money, probably at a higher share price, and therefore you're not going to be diluted in, in a negative manner by the company seeking additional funding. But to, to your very well-made point, you know, drug development in particular is incredibly expensive. So it's unrealistic to imagine that companies are going to have, you know, early stage, earlier stage companies are going to have billions of dollars on their balance sheet to fund their operations through to, you know, commercialisation of potentially multiple products. Mm. There was a really interesting big read in the FT this weekend about AI-assisted drug discovery and there are companies that are promising quite great things in being able to speed up the process and make it more accurate. Um, I think companies like Benevolent AI, Excellentia, Recursion, mm-hmm. Tempest Labs. Um, there's also quite a lot of people that think it's a lot of hype um, that maybe doesn't is not possible because the whole thing's too complicated. What, what are your thoughts on AI-assisted drug discovery? Well, you know, this is actually an, an issue that's, that, that's sort of in many ways close to the trust. So, so. Um, one of our former directors, Professor Justin Stebbing, he was actually involved in uh, working with benevolent AI and using um, algorithms to identify drugs that would likely be effective against COVID. And uh, they identified an anti-inflammatory drug called baricitinib, which was already approved, which actually turned out to be a very effective medicine against COVID. So as a mass screening tool, when you have parameters that you can be confident in, AI is highly effective. And it's worth it's worth bearing in mind that you know, most large drug companies have millions of molecules in libraries that they've developed, um, probably patented in many cases as well, but for various reasons are sitting on a shelf because they didn't have exactly the right profile for what they were initially intended for. So if you can characterise all of those and then you can go back, it's quite possible that you can find rapidly drugs that address something specific. I guess the question is, why Why is it that a drug failed? Um and, and, you know, ultimately, if you think about um, biology, it's, it's, it's kind of like Lego. Everything's composed of a limited number of building blocks, all made into different things. Um, and so that's why you get a lot of side effects with drugs, because in 3D space, a lot of these things look the same. So if you design a drug, it will attach to something in a targeted way, but it'll also go to different places as well. And that's how you get what we call off-target effects, which, which, which can often be side effects. So... Um, the, the the promise of AI to, to help you screen through these libraries and things like that is 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 clearly a very exciting proposition, but I'm not sure as an investment case there's anything particularly special about this. I mean, ultimately, 
if the libraries with all the millions of molecules belong to the Pfizer's and the Novartis's and the Bristol Myers Squibs of the world, then, you know, people who understand how to write screening algorithms that use artificial intelligence, machine learning or whatever you want to call it, I don't think that's the expensive part of it, actually. So I, I think the idea that these things are a standalone business in their own right is potentially quite challenging. You have to prove your algorithm is more successful than somebody else's. And in order to do that, you need lots and lots of data points. So until we get to a point in history where one of these companies can look back and say, we identified, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten drugs that have subsequently come to market, been approved, are safe and effective for what they've been identified for, you don't really have a business. You know, as I say, we're conviction investors. We're all about data. There is no analyzable data for any of these companies yet, not because they haven't done anything. They just haven't done enough for you to say you're, 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 you're lucky or you're good. So I, I think all of these things have tremendous promise, but um, not as an investable idea for, that, to, for, for us to make money from. That makes sense. I guess their plan would, would be to be bought out. Well, the likelihood would be they'd be bought out before they've got enough data anyway. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess... The, the the idea is to 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 sell your 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 machine learning tools to as many people as possible in exchange for some kind of economic interest in the future. I mean that's how that's how I guess you would back yourself, wouldn't wouldn't it be to say, well, look, our program's so good, we'll we'll let you use it, but then we want a slice of the of the, of, of the pie if, if if you develop anything. Um, but but as I say, I, I think we're in the very very early innings of this, and it's probably a conversation to have five or or or, or ten years from now. You know, when you can when you can maybe say that somebody using one of these algorithms has changed those numbers you talked about, you know, they've reduced the cost, they've reduced the time, they've increased the probability of success, then then maybe we have we have something to talk about. Yeah. Well, something we can reflect back on rather than reflect forward on. When you came on the IC podcast in twenty nineteen, you said that you expected that China would Asia and China specifically would become a larger part of the portfolio. Looking at your fact sheet, I think it's three point Asia's three point five percent, so it's pretty insignificant. Mm. What are your thoughts? And and a lot's changed since twenty nineteen. <laughs> yes. What um, are your thoughts now on it? No, it's interesting. China? Some of the things that we do and the valuations that they 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 they, they were receiving in twenty nineteen versus now are quite different. You know, the, the the Chinese market's very challenging, as you know. That the 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 COVID sort of Delta Omicron wave is is only really establishing itself now. Um when these things happen in China, they're hugely disruptive because of the government's zero COVID policy. Um, and then, you, you know, the, the Chinese healthcare market remains very much in, 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 in its early innings. You know, there isn't what most of us would understand as a kind of tertiary healthcare model. Most people don't have access to a family doctor. There's a chronic shortage of doctors. Hospitals are not very good outside of major sort of tier one cities. So it, it remains a very interesting long-term structural opportunity, but um, we have our requirements for due diligence and and everything else and, and focus with companies, and it's difficult to find things that um, we like. So uh, numerically, we have more Chinese exposure than we had back in 2019. Um, in percentage terms, though, you're absolutely right, it still remains a very uh, in, insignificant uh, part of the portfolio and and you know it's interesting as well to to sort of think about innovation um you know, it, i'm sure you know india is a is a major pharmaceutical manufacturing sector mm -hmm. and and has been for a long time but we're still waiting for 
you know, the first multinational success story in pharmaceuticals to come out of Indian labs. It hasn't happened. Similarly, in China, we're on the cusp of that, possibly within the next two, three, four years. We, we might see multiple products. We have a couple. Um, but but it hasn't it hasn't really happened in a in, in a major way yet, and certainly not anything that's groundbreaking in terms of you know completely new mechanism of action, not discovered uh, in 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 you know, Western academia, discovered in, in in Chinese universities, and then then commercialized by a Chinese company and then launched internationally. That that hasn't happened yet, and um, it'll be very very interesting to see how that plays out because again, the sort of cultural secret source of how do you how do you make people serially successful in developing novel medicines uh, remains very elusive. This is precisely why we have the challenges that we do in the pharmaceutical industry that you pointed to of low probabilities of success because ironically the best predictor of whether or not someone's going to lead a team to develop a new drug is whether or not they've led a team to develop a drug before. It's not something that big companies find easy to sort of scale up, reproduce and systematise. Um, and... Um, so whether or not China is ultimately capable of realising its potential, you know, if you look at its academic publication record, it's fantastic in terms of papers that are widely cited, but that hasn't yet translated into it becoming a force in, in drug development or medical device development. Do you have people on the ground there? Because it must be quite a hard market to study from. from well, again, you, you know, that's a really, really interesting question. Lot, lots of people ask this question about, you know, size of teams and, and, and investment performance. There, there's no obvious link between how many PhDs you have or in your team or, or where they're based. I, I think what, 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 what's most important is that you can be objective and genuinely look at everything on a global basis and say, right, what's the best way to do this? Is it from a Chinese company or a Korean company or an Indian company, American company, British, whatever it might be? Um, and if you're applying the same standards to everybody, then ultimately the sort of market knowledge stuff doesn't really matter. I think if you were in the early stage or private sector marketplace, I think it would be important because you're, you're, you're just not going to hear about these things unless you're close to academia. But we're, 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 as I say, more of a mid to late stage public markets uh, focused um, investment strategy. So, so actually for us, it, it, it doesn't really matter. And, and, you know, if you compare our performance, certainly uh, on a five year view against any of our peers who have loads and loads of people on the ground in these different places, you won't, you won't see that it's delivering anything incrementally. Mm -hmm. um, so so I, I, I don't think that's important. I mean, you're, you're right. You have to be able to understand the science. But equally, all that science isn't worth anything unless it's reproduced in, you know, leading uh, international academic journals, in which case anyone can read them. Yeah. Well, I know we had a big biotech and health tech IPO boom in 2020, leading into 2021. But generally, there's a trend of companies coming to market later. Do you think you'll move into private markets? I think it's a very, very interesting question and certainly something that... Um, we're mindful of. You're absolutely right. There, there is a tendency for companies to stay private for longer and um, the rate of innovation in healthcare continues to be very, very high. So um, there's a lot of stuff going on that we see. Um, you know, we, we try and keep ourselves abreast of, of what's happening at the cutting edge. And what that means is we do go to, you know, private market events, effectively, if you like, conferences for private companies that are in areas that we think are moving very, very fast. Um, you know, health tech is a classic example of, of, of an area where you have to be in front of all of the, the sort of private companies to understand what's coming next. Um, 
and then we often find things that are interesting, but but they they sit outside of of, of our investment strategy. So that that is something that we we continue to think about. But on the other hand, we run a very scalable, very liquid strategy. I don't think investors really like the 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 mixing of public and private. I think you know, particularly post Woodford, mm-hmm. that strategy is 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 a little bit challenging. And so if you're going to do anything like that, you probably should separate the things so people understand exactly the risk profile of what they're investing in, you know, how often you can give them an updated net asset value and all those different things um, rather rather than than crowd people into one vehicle with lots and lots of different exposures. Yeah. So you've got a concentrated portfolio. Um, You're not looking at any specific area of healthcare. You're just looking for innovation generally. So the potential opportunity set's huge. How many companies actually filter through your criteria to be deemed investable? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. So, um, if you start with a sort of end of you know publicly listed healthcare, you know you're into the thousands across the globe. If uh, we run a liquid strategy, so that what that means is we, we need companies that actually trade a reasonable amount and therefore are, are a reasonable size. So, practically for us, that means we don't really look at anything that's less than a billion dollars. Um, so then you get into the sort of seven eight hundred kind of range of companies and then uh, because we have this thematic top-down overlay that we, we, we utilize when we think about healthcare there are certain areas of the sort of care delivery paradigm that we see as crucial to re- reimagining how healthcare works so what we're actually looking for in the fund is we're looking for exposure to those so what you then end up with is a series of, of, of we call them clouds but if you like just areas that you want to be investing sometimes the Venn diagrams of those different areas overlap. So we're then mapping companies onto those. All of this you can do systematically. So that then gives us a, an investable universe that's in the sort of you know, four or 500, if you like. And then within that, there's obviously parameters of, of developmental stage, size, you know, how successful they've been so far, how well capitalised are they, all those different things. So what that means is actually the, the list of companies that we would want to be invested in for want of a better word is probably 50 or 60 companies at any given point we've got about 30 in the portfolio and there's another equal number if you like we we we, we call them on our watch list so these are effectively companies that are not quite ready to go into the portfolio and that might be because they're a little bit too small they're not quite liquid enough they haven't reached certain developmental Mm -hmm. gating points that we would want to see in terms of data or, or maturity or whatever it might be or there's another company in the portfolio that we like more and we're happy that we've got enough exposure to that area. So it's not that we we dislike them, it's that we don't like them as much as what we already have. And, and that sort of um, di- dictates the shape of the portfolio. Now, within that, you know, we've had companies that have gone in the portfolio, come out because of valuation has got too high or whatever. They've gone back in. We've actually got a company in the portfolio that's been in and out. It's in its third iteration of being in the portfolio now because it's in a particular area of the market where there's a bit of a tendency for things to get overhyped and there are no sacred cows for us. So you have to, as we map out that sort of five to seven year journey, that there's a window of acceptable valuation. If you start to go to the top of that, we scale back the size of the position. If you go outside the envelope, then unfortunately you're out and we'll, 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 we'll buy something else. Um, and, and there are certain areas of the market as well where, where for regulatory or valuation reasons, or, or, or just just structure, you know, if, if we'd been having a conversation 
three or four years ago, for example, I'd have probably talked a lot about telemedicine being a really important part of how do you make healthcare more efficient, you know, electronic triage, which is kind of what's happening here in the UK. You know, you can't just see your GP anymore. You have to answer a few questions. It might be a telephone appointment. Why? Because we're trying to protect those overused resources and ensure that they're there for the people that need them the most. Now, now, um, those companies providing those telemedicine services five years ago, we were looking at this thinking this is, if you actually look at the potential cost savings to healthcare, this is the single biggest thing that could happen. And so we, we, we were looking for exposure to that and we had exposure to that. What's been really interesting about all of that is that it's happened incredibly quickly and it's become rapidly very, very commoditized. And And the other thing that's apparent is the sophistication of the services has turned out to be much lower than we originally imagined it would be. So so the world's full of people offering Rolls-Royce solutions to a problem that you can fix with a Skoda, for want of a better <laughs> analogy. And so we, we've completely disinvested from that because if you look at the companies and the valuations of the company, the companies are unrealistic about what, what they, they can sell and the market is unrealistic about how much money they can make from trying to sell the things that they, they think they can sell. Whereas, you know, so, so, so that's now we were in and now we're, we're kind of completely out. So that's another aspect of healthcare innovation you have to be very mindful of. You know, we're all thinking about the future, but often when the future arrives, it's different to what you imagined it was going to be when, yeah. when you first set out on that journey. So so again, you have to be nimble and flexible and, and also objective and, and, and sometimes determining and say, this just doesn't work anymore. We're not, we're not going to play this. What companies have you been buying and selling most recently? Um, so one of the big changes in the portfolio over the last um, sort of six months is uh, we've become increasingly exposed to site of care shift. So, you know, again, one of the central tenets of our, um, of our, our broad thesis for the change of healthcare is we need to keep people away from hospitals because hospitals are very, very expensive places. Nobody wants to be in them either. So if you can deliver care in alternative settings, you can save significant amounts of money, but you can also get better outcomes because your patients are happier. And you know, strangely enough, happy people tend to be healthier people. So looking a lot at the delivery of care at home, and you know, related to this is, is the conundrum of social care. So we're not, we're a healthcare investment enterprise, but social care is intricately linked to all of this. So if you look at the NHS, for example, on any given day, there are three or 4,000 people. We've got about 80,000 beds available. There are three or 4,000 beds that have got people in who are healthy enough to be discharged, but for whatever reason, you know, they live alone is often often the, the problem or, or they're vulnerable because they've got dementia or something like that if they're elderly. They can't be discharged because there's nobody to provide the ongoing care that they need. And this could be a young, healthy person like you, for example. If, you, if both your legs were broken, they wouldn't let you go home, right? Because you couldn't move around your house and look after yourself and things. Um, so, so it's a really interesting question for society. You know, how much can we move critical services out of hospitals into home care and assisted living and all these sorts of things. And there's a lot of thinking going on about that and, and innovative thinking about delivering those services. And we're finally seeing that progress. This wasn't the case when we first launched the fund five years ago into genuinely investable strategies where people are delivering actually quite complex care needs in alternative settings. And you're going to see, I think, more and more of this happening because the next generation of, of, of people who would likely be institutionalized, so the baby boomer generation, 
They don't want to go into homes. They want to be independent for as long as possible. And they're the first generation that really want to have a say in their continuing care. You know, our, our previous generations kind of, you know, the doctor knows best and they went along with, with, with what they were told. That isn't really the case. And as we move through time, people are going to want to have more and more of a say. Um, so, so, so that's quite an exciting area and we're, we're seeing some interesting uh, things happen there. And I think COVID's, again, accelerated that. You, you know, a lot of people are much more wary of putting relatives into an old people's home or something like that after they saw what happened during COVID. Maybe the care wasn't what they hoped and they couldn't get access and intervene with their loved ones in the way that they would have liked to. Can you tell me about two companies in the portfolio that you think have particularly interesting investment cases? Yeah, so um, two of the biggest positions in the portfolio we have uh, at the moment are, uh, they're both American companies. One is called Jazz Pharmaceuticals and the other is a company called Sarepta Therapeutics. So Jazz um, is an interesting company. It, it principally focuses on three areas, so sleep disorders, uh, epilepsy, and um, oncology, particularly um, leukemia-focused oncology. And um, it's an unusual company in the sense that the market has fallen out of love with it in quite a spectacular way over the last sort of years. It was always a cheap company with with unrealized potential. But we now have a paradoxical situation where the potential is broadly recognized, but the valuation hasn't adjusted to 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 reflect the forecast, for want of a better word, that people are now prepared to ascribe to the particular products that it has. So that's actually the biggest uh, position in our portfolio right now. And it 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 feels that there's a sort of air, air of inevitability now to, to the company being significantly re-rated as the potential um, of the products that it has on the market. And that's a critical point here. We're not talking about, you know, potential approvals. We're talking about the pace of commercialization of, of launch products and, and concerns over, you know, how they manage their way through exclusivities and things like that. Um, so that's one that we really, really like because there's some interesting innovative medicines there and they're, they're just, you're just simply not paying for any presumption of success. Sarepta is slightly different. So Sarepta is um, uh, a leading protagonist in the race to commercialise gene therapy. Now, gene therapy, so the idea of gene therapy is where, where people have a genetic-based disorder. So you, are, you have a malfunctioning gene in your, in your body that is producing something that is either not functional or deleterious to your metabolism because it's it's you know accumulating or whatever it might be. So the idea of gene therapy is you introduce a foreign gene, and um, you therefore enable somebody to correct whatever metabolic problem that they have. Now I remember this is one of the things I I, I when I was at university again in the early nineties, you know, writing um, some some big piece about how you know this was just around the corner and it was the next big therapeutic <laughs> revolution. Here we are many decades later and we're still waiting for it to happen because it's actually quite complex and challenging to 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 work out how to do it you know it sounds a very simple thing take a gene put it inside somebody but you've got to get it in the right place you've got to get it expressed you've got to actually um get it into the person um and so lots of people are working on this but sarepta to our mind is the company that have done the most work to overcome the various hurdles that this this area hasn't and presented data to support that and also procured the manufacturing capabilities to actually if their drugs get approved to, to actually make these things which is no small challenge and if you look at their financial accounts you'll see just how expensive it is to build something that 
literally doesn't exist. Um, and we think that's really, really exciting. So, so when we look at the field of biotechnology, you know, if you look at biotech today, there are some big, mega successful companies. You know, Moderna emerged recently as a, a very large company, Regeneron, Biogen, Amgen, and so on. And then there is a huge number of very, very small companies. When we look at, when Brett and I look at the biotechnology universe and we think, you know, which of these five to $10 billion companies could be a 50, 60, $100 billion company 10 years from now? The only one that we really like is Sarepta, which again is why it's one of our, our sort of top three holdings in the portfolio. And they had um, a, a very significant um, sort of data readout. Uh, at the beginning of the year that I think really gives us confidence that they're, they're on the right track and it, this could be the beginning of, of, of a genuinely transformational age from a biological perspective. If you, if, if you can make gene therapy work once and you can address all of the myriad concerns around doing it, that's actually applicable to a number of diseases. So you can imagine that this could, could become quite a big thing quite quickly. Yeah. Well, Paul, thank you so much for your time. That was really interesting. I appreciate having you on. Thanks. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.